Uh, we're going to continue in our series of the book of Hebrews. I'll continue to chapter 4, so you can stand with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And it reads, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we know, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us the gift of your word. Pray that you would help us to see truly what we are intended to see. Help us, Lord God, to, by your spirit, come to the reality of the gospel once again and respond in kind with worship and honor for the Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that you would hide me behind the cross, that you'd use me as a willing vessel, Lord. Speak your word. Speak the words of truth as the spirit leads. We thank you, God, and we trust you in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. So as we continue in this context of Scripture, which is called a warning passage, beginning in Hebrews 3, verse 7, we've explored a couple of different themes. One of the themes that we've explored is perseverance. Another theme is urgency. If you can hear and read the tone of why this is considered a warning passage. And intertwined in those themes is an actual destination. The fallen Israelites' illustration points to a particular place. The illustration that involved the Israelites points to the promised land. The fact that they failed to reach the promised land. And with the identification of the promised land, we find final theme, which is rest. Rest. If we continue reading here in the beginning of chapter 4, there's a, a congregational continuation of Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is what was quoted back in chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. And this is not just a, a call towards individuals. This is a congregational warning. This is a congregational uh, communication to a group of people. It's a message for a group of people, not just for individuals. But in the context of congregational worship, Psalm 95 unpacks first half in a praise and adoration, glorification of God, all of his attributes. And the second half of that psalm gives us this warning. God is saving a people. 
God is saving individuals, but the makeup of God's promises, the salvation of the righteous, encompasses a group of people. So as we fellowship in the same way we fellowship today, and as I speak to an audience of more than one, God is also speaking to a people, congregation. And we see that Psalm 95 is written to recall the time where the Israelites failed to make it to Canaan, the promised land. But what's communicated in Psalm 95 is post-Canaan. So the time where Psalm 95 was written was after the story had played out. The Israelites failed to reach Canaan. Some did enter into Canaan, so there was a dwelling in Canaan, in this promised land. But what Psalm 95 tells us is that there is a greater promise to be fulfilled. There is a greater rest for us to seek. And what we'll explore over the next few weeks is the rest specifically mentioned in these first three verses and also the ones to follow. So let's first define rest. Let's, let's use what Scripture is, is telling us here to define what this rest is. If you literally take the Greek translation of the word rest, one of the definitions you'll find is that rest is the heavenly blessedness in which God dwells and of which he has promised to make persevering believers in Christ partakers after the toils and trials of life on earth are ended. So what we come to a common understanding that in trusting in Christ, believing the gospel, there is a rest in Christ as a result of our faith in Christ. There is a rest that we have now. But this rest that's being spoken of here is a rest to come, a heavenly rest, a place that goes beyond earth, a place that goes beyond our existence here. There's an end that we have in sight, a promise that God will fulfill. One commentator writes, I think sums this up well, the focus is not on the condemnation of the wilderness generation, but on God's testimony in Scripture that a resting place truly exists. Interesting part about that definition of rest. This metaphor, the promised land, actually truly represents this grander and greater kind of rest is that when everyone thinks, most people, I'll say, when most people think about heaven, they think of this place where all of our cares are gone and things are just better and we don't have to deal with life here on earth and pain is no more and we can just excuse our, our past and everything that made our lives ugly and finally get into this utopia where everything is all right. Now, heaven as defined by Scripture is different from heaven as a mainstream idea. Because heaven is not heaven unless God is there, unless Jesus is there. We, we enter into a rest that is filled with God. That's what makes it rest. That's what makes it restful. So let's begin here at 
verse 1 of chapter 4. The first word that you read there is the word therefore. Therefore. That word forces us to look back. The word forces us to look from where we just came. Where we just exited was the end of chapter 3, which said that these people, these Israelites, were unable to enter because of unbelief. If we look back a couple verses earlier, we see these bodies that fell in the wilderness. They did not enter the rest. Why did they fall? Verse 19 tells us it's not just because of disobedience. It's not just because God's law was given and established and they just didn't obey the law. They fell because of unbelief. Unbelief. It's an important distinction. It's important for us to carry that with us. Unbelief is what's being addressed here in these verses as a means to obtaining the promise. Belief, faith versus unbelief. It's a contrast. Now, the interesting phrase here after therefore is, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. That, that continues along this idea of today, the urgency of today. When you hear today, listen. Today as the Holy Spirit speaks, listen to him. Today, this promise still stands. You're listening to the gospel. You're sharing in the gospel. You are, you are given an opportunity to respond to the gospel today while the promise of entering the rest still stands. And this is the period of time where God invokes his promise to his people. It's the first mention of the word promise is associated with rest. So it's the promise being, this is the pledge God gives to us. I promise I will do. And also the substance received, I have done it. It's where we see the entire concept that's taught throughout Scripture where there's this promise made to Abraham and see that it's interconnected with the basis of the new covenant where Abraham's heirs are essentially followers of Jesus. We see in this text and the ones preceding that the just should live by faith. They will live by faith in contrast with those who fall because of unbelief. So we persevere in faith to enter a full and final rest, this eternal rest beyond this place here. And then we get into the uncomfortable stuff. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Let us fear. That's where we have to stop for a second and say, wait a minute, am I understanding the gospel correctly? Are you telling us to fear? What are we to fear? It's important for us to answer that question. What are we to fear? If you're telling me to fear, what am I to fear? 
I want to I want us to visit this idea to say that walking is walking in fear is this type of living unto Christ as an awareness of our unbelief. So living in faith with an awareness of our unbelief. This fear is placed against our unbelief or our tendency to lack faith. So you're fearing unbelief. You're actively on guard. You're urgently living out your faith in a, in a way that opposes unbelief. If you look at that as a measure of walking with Christ, what would you contrast with? How, you can contrast that with walking in indifference, where you're, you're either walking in a conscious effort to stand against, to war against unbelief, to fear falling because of unbelief, and you're on guard, you're, your eyes are open, you're sober-minded, you're walking as unto the Lord, you're urgent in your application, or you're indifferent to the commands of God. You're indifferent to what Christ calls you to be. You're indifferent to your sin. You don't care. The urgent call comes to you and it falls on deaf ears or it falls on shrugged shoulders. If that is your response to the urgent commands of God, as you're reading through Scripture here and you're hearing this warning passage and your response is to sit back and to feel relatively indifferent, to not do anything differently or to, to respond in a different manner, you should not expect to enter his rest. You fear unbelief. It's a measure of fearing God who exercises judgment against unbelief. As we unpacked a bit last week, there's this urgency here. We are not to trifle with God. We're not to trifle with Scripture. Our tendency in this country is to take it or leave it. Say, ah, I think that may apply to me. Ah, I think that could be helpful for me if I think about it a little bit later. Not to trifle with this word. We're not to trifle with this God who we learn of from this word. Let's read this again. Let us fear and continue, lest any of you. Let us fear, lest any of you. You catch that there's a, there's let us fear. There's an identification of a people group, lest any of you speaking seemingly to individuals. Let us fear, lest any of you. So again, if we're, if we're entering into this text, understanding that this is a congregational warning, God is speaking to dealing with a people. There's a distinction here where individuals are being addressed. The contrast 
Let us fear, those of us who belong to Jesus, those of us who share in Christ, who are actively walking out our salvation with fear and trembling, who are responding to unbelief with a fearful sense of this is God, this is his lordship, this is who I respond to, this is who I love, this is who I am devoted to. I fear unbelief, I walk against it, I war against it, lest any of you So I believe he's addressing individual unbelievers. Again, we think of church services and we think of the fact that we all gather here and there's this general assumption that everybody who sits in any of these seats, they're all regenerated. Everybody is joyfully celebrating Jesus and his death and his resurrection. They're, they're, they're experiencing the fruit of that profession in their lives But sadly, that is just not true. You don't just sit in church just so you can escape, I guess, an assumption about your life. And then you walk out the doors feeling like, well, enough people saw me here just so I'm a Christian. You walk before God. That's the fear. That's that's what you are actually, that's the one you're living for. There's a distinction here. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This word seem, if you just read it in passing, it's, it's, it's almost like this wishy-washy term. Like, lest any of you would seem to have failed to reach it. Like, we don't really know. It's a possibility that you didn't reach it. It appears that maybe you didn't reach it. The way this word seen is used here is not to be taken as a wishy-washy word. It's to be taken as a forensic term, a word that, that speaks to a definite sense of being found or judged as one who has failed to reach it. Now, who's the only one who could find us in a final sense to judge us in this way to say that you have failed to reach it? That is God himself. This word seem is used in a specific way to say you have been found as one who is not one of mine, as one who will not enter this rest. This is a determination that they who did not reach his rest would not. Not because of our external view or opinion of whatever we think your, your grade is on the way you live your Christian life. I could look at someone and say they get an A for what I think and I perceive about how they live publicly. And they get a, a C minus or a D because it doesn't look like they have a grasp of it. But my conclusion is not good enough. It's God's judgment, his direct and final judgment. He says so. In the same way he just said so in chapter 3, verse 18, he swears that they will not enter his rest. And as we will eventually see in chapter 4, verse 3, he swears in his wrath that they will not enter his rest. It is God who decides. It is God who has said and it's final when he does. 
Verse 2 reads, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. So if we go back to Israel and walking through the wilderness, the good news came to them. The gospel came to them. Well, wait a minute. The, the Old Testament makes no mention of the word gospel. There's no Jesus. There's no disciples. There's no New Testament covenant unveiling or anything like that. The gospel came to the Israelites. Moses declared a message to preach freedom to those who were captive, to liberate those who were oppressed, to demonstrate the Lord's favor towards his people. That's the gospel literally set free from their captivity, literally led out of Egypt, the place of bondage and subjection to a law that was sin, into a law that was life. They were led through the Red Sea. They experienced this baptism into a new faith. They walked in the wilderness. This is the gospel that's being proclaimed to them. It's the same gospel that the prophet Isaiah specifically wrote about, Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to captives, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Moses was the one to institute the year of Jubilee. And if we accept what Moses' message was as a prophetic version of what Isaiah's message ended up being, then we must see how what Jesus declared lines up exactly with what these people heard. Let it not be said that the gospel was not preached in the Old Testament. They heard the gospel. They literally experienced the reality of God's work. But what does this text say? This gospel came to them, but it did not benefit them because of their unbelief. So again... What we're seeing maybe implicitly here is this, uh, this, this gospel being preached is something that was what the people could respond to. They could respond in faith. They did not have the revelation of Jesus Christ at that time. The law was given, and the law is good. The law is holy, and the law is perfect, but they had not yet seen the law fulfilled to perfection in a person. So while we can say what they had was good, and it was right, it was righteous, it was holy, it was perfect, they did not have the fulfillment of the law. They did not have the fulfillment of that what was promised So implicit in that is that Jesus is the better fulfillment. He is is not just the, the better version of something old. He is everything that you thought you knew right in front of you. It is who you can respond to. It is not just what. It is who. It is him. He holds all of the promises and what he declares about himself. 
This author is alluding again back to chapters 1 and 2 and what we see in Jesus, the author of a new covenant, better promise of deliverance, complete with an all-sufficient high priestly sacrifice and an eternal rest with him. Those who are united by faith, again, this communal, this congregational, this people that God has saved, in contrast to the individuals who hear this message and it does not benefit them. does not benefit them because they're not united by faith. So, this belief versus unbelief, this, this, this idea that the just shall live by faith, those who are identified as those who will enter into the, race, in, into the rest are those who walk by faith, those who have responded in faith to God's promises. Verse 3 says that, for we who have believed enter that rest. So here we see definite assurance here. We who have believed enter that rest. What drives our assurance in what's being said here? We who have believed enter that rest. We know that we are going to be with Jesus forever. This is an assurance statement. We who have believed enter into this rest. We can be sure of this. This place is for us. This is not just something that's being spoken of hypothetically or in in this mythical sense to make you distracted from your immediate circumstances. You're going to be with Jesus forever. What is the assurance of this? It's the very next phrase. As he has said, in the same way He executes perfect judgment against those who will not enter. He gives perfect assurance for those who will enter. Ultimately, everything that we believe, everything that we hold is true, everything that we say that we will die for rests with what God has said. You can make much of your profession if you want. You can make much of all the things that you have done that look Christian if you want. But if it's not God who has said it, if it's not God who has solidified and sealed it, then you don't have lasting hope. That's why you can't put your trust in your works. This measure of fear towards God is something that has literally been done in you. It's something that God has, he has literally transformed you and conformed you. He's conforming you to the image of his son. So your direction in the way that you walk is looking to him to find your sufficiency, to define your dependence, to ultimately ascend to a glory that only he could have obtained for you. God has said it. It is established because God has established it. We who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
see it's final for them, it's final for us. Now this next phrase is a huge phrase that could be a sermon in and of itself. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. This assurance that God has said it can only be comfort and confidence for you if you know the nature of the God who has said it. It can only become final for you. It can only be a sense of confidence and faith for you if you know this God who has said it. And what this small phrase says to us is an eternity worth a revelation. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, what this tells us is that this entire plan, everything that we see here in these words in this chapter, everything that we we know about God in our experiences in living out what the Bible tells us to do was established in eternity past. This wasn't a new idea. This isn't something that we're just figuring out on the fly. This is something that has always been established in the mind of God. This has always been his intention, his purpose. This was not any human design. This was God himself standing outside of time, standing in a place where no person could ever occupy saying this will be so. This is an echo from eternity past. In Revelation chapter 13, you'll find a text that's talking about something a lot of us are very uncomfortable studying and reading and parsing through, which is this idea of the beast on earth, the beast persecuting those who believe. But in that chapter, you'll find this, this sentence that's, that's specifically there to, to help us endure. It's literally a call for endurance, as Revelation 13.10 says. And what this, this statement says, and I'm going to turn there just so we can read it together. Thirteen eight, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, speaking of the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So who are those who will worship this beast? All of those whose names were not written when? Before the foundation of the world. Before anything else that we know to be true here was ever established in our eyes. Before the foundation of the world, your name was written. In this book of life of the Lamb who was slain, 
So we're talking this plan of the lamb being slain, this reality of the lamb being slain, being established before any one of us took a breath on this earth. If that is not confidence, if that is not assurance, I don't know what assurance can be for you. Is that whatever steps you take being ordered and organized in the plan and the mind of God before we could have ever conceived them, and he working out his purposes in our lives and us beholding the evidence of the work that he established in eternity past and us glorying in him as he has designed us to glory in him and entering into a full and final rest. From old covenant salvation to the faith in the finished work of Christ, this has always been the plan. To know the God who has said it and established it is to acknowledge him as sovereign from beginning to the finish. So that's what's said to this group of Jewish Christians who are experiencing the first wave of persecution. That's what's written in this letter, and that's the audience here, the intended audience. So for us, the unintended audience, what do we extract from these words? I think we we need to, to pay very close attention to what's being said about faith here. What's being said about faith. We started with the therefore that points us back to unbelief, but what's being said here gives us a sense of how do we define this faith? What does this faith look like? Now, many people claim to have faith or they believe in God. There's this religious assent to an understanding that what, this is what drives my tendencies or my rituals. I, I have faith because this is what I believe. What's being communicated here is not something that we, again, could conjure up or did conjure up. This is something established from eternity past and something that we're seeing worked out in our lives. Whereas John Piper defines faith, he says, this is not a mental assent. Rather, it is an embrace of all the beauty all the value of Jesus. It's not something your mind can say, oh, that's a fact, so I just believe it, and that just makes sense. My life just looks like this. It goes beyond what your mind can comprehend. It goes beyond what your mind can conjure. This is a beauty that is, is, was established before we were ever any kind of human being reality on this earth. So this beauty must lay hold of you, and your response in embracing it is the expression of faith that's being communicated here. This faith is a whole, a sense of wholeheartedly trusting in Christ, falling into this embrace that he offers. As we attempt to lay hold of it, he holds us and we fall into that we trust in what he has said. So you not thought about this a little bit more deeper than just what 
equates to fact in your mind and, and what may, may make sense according to how you've diagrammed your life. It's worth more exploration because what's at stake here is rest or no rest. So if you have this genuine faith, we should see these applications. We should fear that we are not believing. We should fear that we are not believing. We shouldn't be apathetic. We shouldn't be non-urgent. Laissez-faire, y'all. It'll work out. You know, a lot of people are scared of the once saved, always saved ideology where it's just, I prayed this prayer a long time ago, so I know I'm all right. Your confidence is in what you did instead of what God has done before you ever came here. You should fear that you're not believing. You should approach life circumstances with a careful urgency to obey what God has declared in his word. That's one application. Second application, you should fear for those who have not believed. You should fear for those who have not believed. So there's a genuine concern for those who will not enter into his rest. As Pete stood up here and talked to us about Ramadan, you know, this is this real simple booklet given to us for 30 days. Gives us opportunities to literally pray for the salvation of those whose faith is placed in something that has no hope. And that is out of a fear for their end, how could we not pray for them? How could we not call out to God for them? How could we not seek the salvation of those who don't know this Jesus that we're being constantly exhorted to consider? Now, next week, we'll explore the nature of this rest, not just what it is, but the nature of it and what Scripture tells us we should hope to see in this rest. Right now, my prayer is is that your faith is strengthened by the God who offers his rest. The fact that we can place our confidence in a God who has all things in his control, he has promised, he has fulfilled, he has initiated his purposes, and he has also finished them. pray that you are experiencing a deep trust in Jesus. Your hope is not in a sermon. Your hope is not in a carefully articulated presentation of the gospel. Your hope is not in the most idealistic presentation of the Christian life from friends and family that you admire and you look up to, but your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You're able to See these words and 
live this life and experience the word of, words of a very simple song that I remember hearing as a kid is, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Literally to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus says the Lord. He has said it. Let's look forward to that rest as a communal, faith-expressing, exercising body together. And let's fear for those who don't. A fear that doesn't translate to hopelessness and apathy, but a fear that propels us into action. To seek them, to share this good news, to pray for them, to intercede for them. Let us be an active, alive body together. Let's pray. Lord, I just come before you knowing that nothing I have in my hands to bring can equate what you have done on the cross. I pray that I continue to find reassurance and confidence in that cross and know that what Jesus has done is enough. I'm active in sharing my faith and walking out in fear and trembling, what you have declared to us. I pray, God, that you'd help us wrestle with this reality, wrestle with this fear, this idea of fear. Not because we're, we're, we're just in a place where we have to, to fulfill our moral tendencies or, or our tendencies to fulfill any kind of moralistic application, but because your word declares it, because you tell us to fear. Reveal to us, God, in our lives what that means and how, is it, how it is expressed. Cultivate humility in our hearts and our minds to see you as Lord, see you as worthy Remind us of this rest that we have because you promised it to us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.